If you do most of the right things most of the time, you're going to do far better on sleep, wakefulness, mood, immune system, metabolism, blood sugar regulation, focus. It's a foundational layer of health. This was advice given by neuroscientist Dr. Andrew Huberman when talking with Drew Perot in his interview on the Broken Brain podcast. Listen in to hear some of the things Dr. Huberman is referring to, what they have to do with light and seasonal depression, and how to improve the overall quality of your sleep. It's Tracy. Thanks for being here. And welcome to another replay of the day on this episode of Invisible You, a podcast for women over 40 living courageously. I said this on last week's podcast, and I'm going to say it again. It was really hard to choose what part of the show to share because the whole thing was so good. The first half of the interview where today's clip comes from is all about the benefits of light and light therapy. And that's followed up in the second half with an emphasis on focus, learning, the misconception of the flow state, and the connection between dopamine and the effort process. It's so good. (laughs) I highly recommend tuning into the entire episode if possible because it's worth your time to hear it to the end. And I thought I knew a lot about the benefits of light before listening to Dr. Huberman, but he surprised me with a few things that I've already started incorporating into my routine. And I don't know about you, but some of my habits and routines, they got disrupted during quarantine from well, because of COVID. So if you're anything like me and you need a bit of a reboot, this is a great place to start. And one of the things I started to do was take 10 to 15 minute walks first thing in the morning right after I woke up. I also invested in a really fashionable pair of yellow blue light blockers from a company called True Dark. And I wear those during the day when I'm on my computer or, or at night when I go on a hot date. Okay, I'm kidding, obviously. I never actually go on any hot dates. Uh, The other thing I've done is get a gym membership at Planet Fitness. They seem to be popping up everywhere, so you might even have one near you. I don't actually work out there, believe it or not, but for 22 bucks a month, I take advantage of their red light therapy bed and vibration plate. It's similar to a stand-up tanning bed. It has full body red light instead of the potentially harmful UVs that you would get in a, a regular tanning bed. I won't go too deep here, but it helps with healing and energy. So do a quick Google search if you're interested in learning more. And last thing I'll mention is the F.Lux software I have on all my computers. It's free to download and use. It dims and removes blue light from your screen as the sun goes down. And obviously it takes into consideration uh, the time zone you're in. Now, I can be a bit obsessive when it comes to my health, just in case you couldn't tell. It's one of the only things that doesn't fall into my generally, we'll call it a shiny object syndrome personality. (laughs) I can be completely dialed in with the latest diet plan, healing treatments, supplements, you name it. And then I'll be a day late with my rent or I'll completely forget an important appointment I had scheduled. 
So I guess what they say is true. When you have a high value on something, you tend to be more organized around that thing. And that's definitely the case for me. If you're wondering what you place a high value on or where your priorities lie, take a look around. What do you see? Where do you find your most organized? It might give you some clues or at least, I don't know, a place to start. I've always been pretty health conscious, even as a kid. I'm not sure why my parents, they were absolutely not. I have this theory that it's genetic and it skipped a generation. (laughs) I don't think they'd appreciate that, but just ask my kids. I was that mom, you know, the embarrassing one who always was toting around a bunch of healthy snacks or drinks in her purse when we were out. I actually have this vivid memory of a friend coming to visit and she brought brownies that she'd made for my girls. This was obviously years ago when they were they were small. And I'm not sure what was funnier there. This is the best S-H-I-T I've ever eaten reaction. Or my friends that they'd never had a brownie before. And for a minute, I thought she was going to call child services on me. And things really took off when I got Lyme disease about 10 years ago. Before that, I thought of health as just a lifestyle, like most people. You know, what people do to stay slim or free from illness. I did the typical things you might hear from your doctor. Eat right, exercise, drink your eight glasses of water a day. You know, the basics. And afterward, it became a crusade, part of my identity. It wasn't just what I did, but who I was as a person. Everything I did from that moment on came from a place of fear and scarcity. Not the funnest place to be, but it definitely served me at the time and it helped me get through the hardest part of my journey. Now, as I got better, my mindset did shift and I went from avoiding illness to seeking health, optimal health, in fact. It's not perfect and it's still an obsession, but at least now my perception is, well, healthier. So why am I telling you this? Because I spent a decade of my life and upwards of at least $100,000 easily, no exaggeration, and countless hours researching, learning, and experimenting on myself to find what works. Ironically, it all works, but like everything else in life, it's all about timing, and certain treatments and tools work at certain times. What might not work early on could very well be useful after having success with one thing or another, and one thing I've always found benefit from is light, and light therapy. And it plays a role in health no matter what, because our bodies and our organs are built for it, from our eyes to our skin, to those little powerhouses in our cells called mitochondria. And the best part, you don't need to use Apple Pay to get it. So that's a bonus in my book. (laughs) So I hope you get as much from today's talk as I did, and it opens the door for you to Dr. Huberman's work. I've been podcast stalking him for quite a while now, and he has such a great way of taking the complex and breaking it down, especially for those of us not a scientist at Stanford. A lot of what he says seems like it should be common sense, but what's that saying? Common sense isn't so common. Today, it's so easy to get lost, and I did, in all the latest and greatest biohacking tips, tools, apps, and options out there that we forget the simple things we all have access to, like light, that can make a profound difference in our health and well-being. And check out Dr. Huberman's Instagram. He shows up pretty regularly there to share and teach about his latest research and findings. Lots of helpful info on there. 
most people don't realize that these two little pieces of brain that we call the eyes and retina that are outside our skull are controlling a tremendous number of aspects of our life. So optic flow is powerful, getting into self-generated optic flow each day, walking or running or biking. Um, driving doesn't quite have the same effect, but it might, you know, or motorcycle riding, probably dangerous for other reasons. Probably don't want to do that because we could have a discussion about spinal cord injury, but, um, uh, but getting morning light is just absolutely powerful. And then of course, nowadays people are walking, looking at their phone or they're really glued to their, the screen of their phone while they're out walking or even exercising sometimes. And then what you do is what, when you do that is you, short circuit the process of, of relieving the anxiety that occurs with an optic flow. So, you know, because the eyes are fixated, they're not moving from side to side. And then you ask, well, people have all these sleep issues. You know, there's a lot of depression and sleep issues, and those could be caused by a number of things. But my friend Samar Hattar's lab at National Institutes of Health and also David Burson at uh, Brown University have shown that the light that comes from the phone in the middle of the night from about 11 p.m. to 4 a.m., suppresses dopamine release through a pathway involving a brain structure called the habenula and can lead to memory defects. So now you start piecing together the, the, you know, these things that we see in society, like, oh, when I take a run, I feel better. Or, you know, I'm just exhausted and kind of stressed. And, you know, I wake up in the middle of the night and look at my phone. You can start tacking the vision science to these things that we know are problematic. And what's so cool is that the solutions lie in that, in establishing those connections. When you start realizing what, what's happening, you can relieve a lot of sleep issues. This is why Dan and I got into that conversation about what he might or might not be doing in terms of visual behavior. Or people who are waking up in the middle of the night and they're trying to get back to sleep by looking at their phone, and even though it's got that nighttime setting, they're actively promoting a depressive state to kick in about a day later. And so, you know, there's a lot of links that I think are starting to um, establish themselves because of, in, in part because of social media, there's this convergence of information on podcasts and social media. And science is, you know, at least I'm trying to butt my head into that. And Sachin Panda has been contributing a lot, a former colleague of mine from the Salk Institute, Sam Hattar is now on social media. And so these neuroscientists are starting to raise their hands and say, hey, I think I might know what's going on here. And maybe there's something we could do right now in order to alleviate these issues. You know, there are a lot of crazy ideas in the world of biohacking. There's just some downright crazy and some dangerous ideas. And at the same time, there's some really great prompts from the field of biohacking. And one of them is this whole issue of the color of light. Okay. And I'm, um, I'm always reluctant to get into this because I feel like I'm a, it, it's gonna, sooner or later I'm going to end up in a, you know, a head-to-head combat with somebody who's really into like red light therapy or something. And, and my response is always, um, look, you know, double-blind peer-reviewed literature is important. It's not everything because, you know, oftentimes these more esoteric practices or things where there hasn't been a lot of published research, um, they're just not there yet. Right. I mean, my lab studies respiration that was prompted by a lot of work that people are doing, like Oxygen Advantage, Brian McKenzie, Patrick McEwen, Wim Hof, like Tumo breathers, you know, they can they can highlight certain things that science might want to take a closer look at. Now, when it comes to the blue light issue, this is especially salient. So here's here's the idea. So the light getting bright light in the middle of the night from 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. triggers these pro-depressive circuits through the habenula this H-A-B-E-N-U-L-A, this um, interesting structure in the thalamus. In addition to that, it's known to trigger a pathway from the habenula to the pancreas that can start altering some blood sugar rhythms. A lot of people don't know this, but the habenula 
connects to the pancreas and actually in type two diabetes and in particular smoking induced type two diabetes, it appears that the habenula pancreas pathway is involved. There's a beautiful paper published in nature not long ago that illustrates that not my work, another group's work. So blue light in the middle of the night is going to be very effective at triggering these pro-depressive circuits and disrupting the things that you want in a, in a not so good way through the habenula and other pathways. But it turns out that blue light is not the culprit. It's the brightness of the light and the intensity of light that matters most. You can have a bright white light or a bright red light and still get these negative effects. Now, the reason for that is that early in the day, which is when you want it shortly after waking, even if it's still dark out, but certainly once the sun is up, you want to get some bright light in your eyes, ideally from sunlight early in the day. Here's why. Early in the day, the sensitivity to light for the retina is low, so you need a lot of bright light in the morning in order to stimulate the pathways correctly. As nighttime approaches, and especially when you've been asleep for a few hours, the sensitivity of the retina goes up. So this is something that isn't often discussed, but there's a, there's a circadian rhythm to sensitivity of the retina, so that very low levels of light, regardless of color, can trigger these negative effects in the middle of the night, but they wouldn't be sufficient to induce the positive effects during the daytime. So it's kind of a double-edged sword there. So what do you do? Well, first of all, I want to be clear that viewing a, you know, a bathroom light in the middle of the night, if you have to go to the bathroom, is, is not the end of the world. It's not going to make you depressed. I mean, you just, on a consistent, if you're viewing bright light in the middle of the night on a consistent basis, that's not good, regardless of color. But for people that think that they can get away with just using amber lights or red lights and still be okay, that's probably not true in the, in the wee hours of the morning between you know 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. is kind of a broad um, area there, but a uh, time frame rather. But I think really you know midnight to 3 a.m., you want to avoid bright light. So blue blockers are a big deal now. A lot of everyone's crazy about blue blockers, and they will help mitigate some of the effects. But I had Samer Hatar, head of the chronobiology unit, National Institutes of Health, on my Instagram. We did an Instagram Live, and he thinks that most of the effects of the blue blockers are just filtering out brightness of light. And he actually has concerns about doing very narrow band or narrow wavelength filtering of light. That's a very unusual situation for the visual system to be in to take out one band of light for significant portions of the day. Um, so am I anti-blue blocker? No. You know, I always worry, like, are the blue blockanistas going to come after me? Okay, maybe. <laughs> um, we can have a discussion. Um, I think they can help, but I, it's really not about blue light. Now, as long as we're talking about the color of light, it always comes up, well, what do you think about these bright light um, things in the morning to get really bright red light. Typically, it's a sheet of red lights. Again, I don't think it has anything to do with the red light. I think it has to do with the brightness. And then I usually get attacked by the mitochondrial folks and they go, yeah, but what about the effects of red light on mitochondria? And I go, okay, that's a separate conversation. So I want to be really clear that what I'm discussing here is the brightness of light is the key parameter. Avoid bright lights in the middle of the night. Get bright light early in the day, ideally from sunlight. So really bright during the day, cave-like at night is ideal. No one's perfect, so, but think of that as your perfect diet. No one's perfect with their diet either, as far as I know. So, you know, play around that, that kind of perfect scenario and do the best that you can. And if on, you a, work, on, a, yeah. on a practical level, when you're winding down at night, right? You're talking about 11, 12. You know, I usually go to bed around, like, let's say 1030, right? Mm -hmm. uh, 1030, 11. So, as I'm starting to wind down for bed and start to think around nine o'clock, are there things that you do on a practical level in your own home that start to help that process? 
Definitely. So one of the things you can do is to make whatever lights you have in your environment low in the physical environment, meaning not overhead lights. The reason is, is that the retinal cells called melanopsin or intrinsically photosensitive ganglion cells that pay attention to the kinds of cues that reset your circadian rhythm and can alter your circadian rhythm are in the lower half of your eye. And so they view the upper visual field. They were designed to look at the sky. So overhead lights are going to more strongly stimulate your circadian system and these whole, all these systems than lights that are set on tables or that are lamps that are about head height in the room. And it's not a subtle effect. It's actually quite a large effect. And actually, you can use that to your advantage early in the day. Early in the day, let's say you wake up before the sunrise and you want to wake up or you have seasonal depression and you want to get more light in order to feel happier in the uh, winter months, especially if you live at, you know, in you know, Scandinavia or someplace very far north you want to turn on a lot of overhead lights. And as nighttime approaches, you want to shut off overhead lights and use dimmer lights that are set lower in the room. They don't have to be floor lights. It doesn't have to be like airplane or, or movie theater style, though that would be cool if you could do that in your home. Maybe someone will do that. Maybe Ben Greenfield probably does that. Uh, <laughs> he's like kind of taking it biohacking to the extreme. And, and, and again, I tip my hat to him because it's kind of cool to see what people are willing to do and how far they're willing to push this stuff. But short of putting floor lights in for the nighttime and overhead lights for the daytime in your home, um, you can set desk lamps and dim amber light tends to be softest, the softer lights. And uh, so dim amber light is great. Candlelight is fine. Thank goodness. Fireplace fine. Thank goodness. There's a beautiful study that was done by a group at the university of Colorado that took graduate students camping, but what's, um, so this would be cool to be a subject in this experiment. What they, and they published this in Current Biology. So peer-reviewed, really, really strong paper. Um, they published several of these, actually. And what's cool is they looked at students who have been studying a lot on tablets and laptops and been on their phones, and they have very disrupted cortisol rhythms and melatonin rhythms. You want cortisol higher in the morning, and then it tapers off as the evening comes around, and then melatonin comes up usually about 16 hours after you got that morning light, uh, your brightest light of the day. So melatonin that makes you sleepy, helps you fall asleep. This is endogenous melatonin, not supplemented melatonin. These students had really disrupted cortisol melatonin rhythms. I think they'd been studying for exams. So they took them camping and away from devices and let them just use flashlights and campfire and that kind of thing for a weekend. And it completely reset their cortisol and their melatonin rhythms to the correct healthy pattern. And that lasted quite a while. So mm. I want to emphasize that, you know, one night of a messed up sleep where you turn on the lights, you have to, you know, God forbid, drive to the hospital or something like that. It's not going to screw you up long term. It's the consistent light viewing in the middle of the night and the consistent light viewing early in the day that sets you up for poor and great, uh, you know, feeling and, and well-being respectively. So it's your average behavior, just like diet just like nutrition. It's the average. You know, if I eat a, you know, something really sugary, is it going to completely dismantle my health? No, because, you know, I'm not diabetic and the chances are it's not going to disrupt me much. But if I do it on a consistent basis, it's going to start to dismantle my health. So, uh, but if I could just interject the one thing that was, that was quite uh, inspiring by that study, you know, and obviously it's just one study and it's with a group of college students that are there, but it, it's inspiring to know that just one weekend of going out and camping could be part of that reset process. So for anybody who feels like that is me as they're listening to you and they're thinking about the overhead light in their bathroom or they're thinking about the overhead light that's there or the constant sort of work exposure or computer exposure that they've had and built up bad habits to that process, it could even be that maybe 
try going for a weekend of camping and seeing how that feels and how you respond to that. Yeah, it's interesting when people have sleep issues, the first thing I say is not, you know, are you drinking caffeine late in the day? Are you keeping the room cool at night? That stuff, sure, that's important. You don't want to drink coffee at 8 p.m. and expect to sleep well unless, you know, that some people can do that. Most people can't. But I always say, are you getting sunlight in your eyes within an hour of waking up? And people always think I mean you have to watch the sun rise across the horizon. I don't do that. But it's low. So the cells in your eye that, that send all these good signals during the day are looking for what's called low solar angle. So they're looking for when the sun is low relative to the horizon, but it doesn't have to just be crossing the horizon. Usually they say no. And I said, do you see sunlight before you see your phone, before screen light? And usually they say no. And so I said, well, just try and get two to 10 minutes of sunlight. And they say, well, it's cloudy where I live. I don't live in sunny California like you do. There are so many photons coming through cloud cover. It's amazing. Far more than are coming from one of these indoor lights. So then people say, wait, but you said indoor lights are bad for me, but they're not even bright enough to stimulate my clock. But remember, during the day, the sensitivity of your eye is low. You need a lot of bright light. And at night, the sensitivity of your eye is high, which means it doesn't take much bright light from an artificial source. Mm -hmm. So if you really want to get geeky about this for the biohacker types out there, there's a free app. I have no relationship to them, but um, never met them. Don't know who they are. But um, it's called uh, like the Lux app or, um, or, and it's a Lux meter. And so L-U-X. And so you can go outside on a cloudy day and you can point it to the sky and it'll show you even on a really overcast day, even in Seattle, unless you're in the depth of winter, there are more photons coming through than there would be for a really bright indoor light. And so in the morning, you might need some artificial sources to supplement that bright light or the outdoor light rather. If you live in you know Seattle in the depths of winter or Sweden in the depths of winter, but really what you need to do is get outside and get some natural light in your eyes within the first hour of waking. And that sets your sleep timer. And most people find that that one shift can really help. And then of course, stay off lights in the middle of the night. There's one other little tip that I think can be helpful. Nobody's perfect. And a lot of us, including me, wake up in the middle of the night, use the restroom, maybe peer at our phone. Uh, Samer Hattar, who is this guy I mentioned who runs the chronobiology unit. Uh, we've traveled a lot together because we're good friends. We've gone to conferences and he's always looking at his phone in the middle of the night, like, putting it away, like trying not to look at it. I'm like, Samer, it doesn't work that way. And he goes, oh, I know, I know, I know. And so, you know, we know this stuff and we screw up too, right? It's like <laughs> nobody's immune to that. But what you can do is if you can see a little bit of sunlight in the evening when low solar angle is happening because the sun is setting, remember, you don't have to look directly at the sun. It doesn't have to beam you in the eyes, but getting outside and getting those photons reflecting off surfaces and maybe even a, some direct light if you're lucky, like a sunset, it offsets the negative effects of light in the middle of the night. And that mm. effect is quite long. This is a beautiful paper uh, that was published in Scientific Reports that shows that it protects you against some of the negative effects of artificial light in the middle of the night. Anyway, um, if you I do two, those things on a regular basis, just like if you, you know, follow a relatively healthy diet, that means different things to different people. But since, you know, everyone's got their concept of what that is, if you do most of the right things most of the time, you're going to do far better on sleep, wakefulness, mood, immune system, metabolism, blood sugar regulation, focus. I mean, it's a, it's a foundational layer of health. That's all I have for this week. If you're interested in learning more about Drew and Dr. Huberman's conversation, check out the Broken Brain podcast, episode number 134, The Latest Science on Enhancing Focus and Developing a Growth Mindset with Dr. Andrew Huberman.
Links to that and both their social media profiles are included in the show notes below, along with a link to the software I mentioned, f.lux. If you enjoyed today's show, please share with someone you think might benefit. And until next time, thanks for listening.